Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 336. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a looking back at genre history, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Then the main fiction is Bugs by Ron Collins. That is it. That's what's coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So just before we kind of get into it, yeah, as you know, just before... Since last week, lots have happened. I've been to Venice. Did you know? Yes, if you check on Facebook, there's lots of pictures there where the well, actually I was going to say the family went. It wasn't. It was just me and the good wife went to Venice for four days, three nights. Fantastic. Totally recharged the batteries. And what a lovely place that was. So that was really cool. Lovely. Enjoyed it. And just to give you a little heads up as well, you know, the, the, the kind of soap, SMP, the soap manufacturing process. Yeah, here's what I'm doing on the other side. The Starship Soapa soap is nearly, well, I got a, I set myself a reminder on my phone to say that it's kind of, it's been cured. It's had its like five weeks cure. So hopefully next week, possibly the week after, I'll get it all sorted out and get them bars. Starship Sofa's very own soap. How cool is that, man? Go on there. And actually, I probably made about 50 bars, but I've probably only got about 40. Some are just like a little bit light. You know, you're kind of pouring the mixture in, and you know, there's a secret recipe here. And some of them are kind of a little bit smaller than the others. And I've kind of, you know, they're kind of your seconds, you know, on production line. So... I'm guessing there's probably about 40 bars and I'm thinking as well, maybe that's it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know whether they're going to make any more or not, but we'll see. But look out and listen out for that when it comes up. So first up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to pay tribute to a classic television series that blurred the lines between genres paid homage to some of the great literary works of multiple genres, including science fiction, and in the process made television history. It began on the 27th of June, 1966, and it began like this. My name is Victoria Winters. My journey is just beginning, a journey that I hope will open the doors of life to me and link my past with my future, a journey that will bring me to a strange and dark place, to the edge of the sea, high atop Widow's Hill, to a house called Collinwood, a world I've never known, with people I've never met, people who are still only shadows in my mind, but who will soon fill the days and nights of my tomorrows. 
And with these words, orphan Victoria Winters arrived in Collinsport to be a governess to David Collins, believing that Collinwood somehow held the key to her mysterious past. I am talking about Dark Shadows, which ran from 1966 to 1971. If you have to categorize the show, you will often find it labeled as a gothic soap opera. And I've talked in several of my segments about how the gothic is the parent of modern science fiction. But gothic soap opera doesn't really capture everything that Dark Shadows did or was. It originally aired weekdays on the ABC television network in the United States. Reaction was positive enough to keep it on the air initially, but a year into its run, its popularity skyrocketed when the series added the character whose name would become synonymous with it. I'm talking about the character Barnabas Collins, portrayed by Jonathan Frid. Barnabas Collins was a 175-year-old vampire, by turns tragic, dangerous, and romantic. And originally, he was only supposed to be in the series for a 13-week arc of episodes, but he proved to be so tremendously popular with audiences that he became, essentially, the centerpiece of the show. But the show didn't stop there with its genre trappings. It certainly played to the gothic, it played to what we think of today's contemporary horror, featuring not only vampires, but werewolves and zombies and witches and warlocks. But it also incorporated science-fictional elements man-made monsters, time travel, and parallel universes. Whereas the main storyline took place in contemporary times, that is, the 1960s, uh, at the show's peak of popularity, the storyline was taking place in 1897. And there were also storylines in other periods of history. It was perhaps ABC's first truly popular daytime show, along with the game show Let's Make a Deal. And who exactly made Dark Shadows a hit show? Teenagers. Interestingly enough, the show was aired at 4 in the afternoon, Eastern Time, and 3 Central. And this was a crucial moment for a particular niche audience. Parents, traditionally fathers, had not yet returned home from work, and... Other parents, traditionally mothers, had not yet completed their work in the home. The family had not yet come together for the evening meal there in 1960s United States, but kids were home from school and able to choose their programming. And they did, by the thousands, turning to Dark Shadows, a show that was a hit at the time and continues to be a cult hit today. Now, here's an interesting fact about Dark Shadows. Even though it only ran for five years, its scheduling was daily. And as a daily daytime drama, it amassed more single episodes during its run, really, than any other science fiction or fantasy genre series in the English language. We're talking about 
1,225 episodes in five years. That beats 50 years of Doctor Who episodes in sheer number. That's a staggering accomplishment. And over the years, it has inspired a number of other works as well. Home video releases, films, books, magazines, comics, audio drama, revival works. There was a revival on NBC in 1991 and in 2004 on the WB. And yes, I know what some of you were thinking. There was a film version brought out in 2012 by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp as Barnabas Collins. And that's all I'm going to say about that. No, wait, I take that back. I'm going to say something else. I would invite you to uh, join with me in pretending that that never existed. That should go on the list of works, including, oh, the television series Battlestar Galactica 1980 and the movie Highlander the Source, the existence of which we should all deny. Moving on, classic Dark Shadows fans do mark 2012 as the end of an era, but not because of the film. It's because on April 14th, 2012, uh, Canadian actor Jonathan Frid, who was the vampire Barnabas Collins, and thus really the heart, the undead heart of Dark Shadows, passed away at the age of 87. What's so impressive about Dark Shadows, besides the fact it was an early success story of genre television, it proved the viability of the teenage market for genre television in the daytime slot, no less, and it produced a remarkable output of episodes. What I find so fascinating about Dark Shadows is just how well the series creators knew their genre literature. The episodes display a keen understanding of both the Gothic tradition and how the Gothic tradition bled, if you will, into the science fiction tradition. Let me give you a few examples. In the present-day timeline, the main timeline of the series, the main character, our protagonist, Victoria Winters, the orphan-turned-governess out to make her way in the world, is modeled on Charlotte Bronte's classic character, Jane Eyre, one of the great Gothic works that cemented the trope of the madwoman in the attic, whereas the character of Adam in Dark Shadows is based on Mary Shelley's great pioneering work of modern science fiction, Frankenstein. And the character of Quentin Collins and his role in the series is inspired by Peter Quint in Henry James's gothic novel, The Turn of the Screw. Now remember, there are multiple timelines in this show. In the 1795 plotline, there is a witch trial, which goes back to the New England gothic works, the history that haunted authors like Nathaniel Hawthorne, and one of the church leaders meets a fate that comes directly from Edgar Allan Poe and his short story, The Cask of Amontillado. In the 1897 plotline, there's another clear shout-out to Jane Eyre. In this case, we really do have a madwoman in the attic. As well as a mysterious portrait of Quentin Collins, which is very reminiscent of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. 
In the parallel universe plotline, there are episodes adapting elements from gothic works such as Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca and Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, and science fiction works like Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And again, the names of characters offer clues. For example, the great love affair between Bramwell Collins and Catherine Herridge links to Wuthering Heights, because, of course, Catherine was the object of Heathcliff's obsessive love in Wuthering Heights, and Bramwell refers to Bramwell Bronte, the brother of Emily Bronte, who wrote Wuthering Heights. The more you know about genre literature, the more you get out of Dark Shadows. I could go on and on, but my favorite example is a long sequence of episodes that falls under the title Barnabas Falls Under the Control of the Leviathans. And in this sequence, the Dark Shadows universe mixes with, guess what, my man, H.P. Lovecraft and his Cthulhu mythos. Science fiction and cosmic horror at their best. Given that its creators really knew their literary history, and that the show was immensely popular with a teenage audience, it's fair to say that Dark Shadows pointed young viewers in the direction of speculative literature and really served as a gateway drug, a kind of cultural literacy test, and an illustration in the blending of and blurring of genre lines. While other soap operas dealt with romance, heartbreak, and the occasional evil twin, Dark Shadows was traversing different universes, traveling through time, and encountering ghosts, monsters, and aliens as part of everyday fare. And so I encourage you to check out recordings of Dark Shadows and to consider it as part of genre history. I will leave you with the trailer from the April 19th, 1967 episode of Dark Shadows, the episode in which Victoria Winters meets Barnabas Collins for the first time. My name is Victoria Winters. Night is drawing nearer and nearer to Collinwood, and the man who has disappeared into another night has not been found. But out of the falling dusk, another man has come, a stranger who is not a stranger, a man with a face long familiar to those who live at Collinwood, a man who has come a great distance, but who still bears deep within him a soul shaped by the far country from which he came." I hope you'll join me soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go. I'd never even heard of that program, Amy, so thank you so much. Amy put us on to mind, yeah, and I've wolfed it down off in black. And actually, one of those episodes are in for the Hugo Award as well. Has anyone seen Off in Black? Tremendous, tremendous. I did it in like a, a blur of like the first season in about two, three nights, you know, but just fantastic. Loved it. And the second season's now up and running, which I haven't actually saw any of that, but I'm looking forward to doing that. So, Amy, thank you so much for a heads up for that. So, anyone else, Orphan Black, check it out. 
So next up is the main fiction, and it is Bugs by Ron Collins. I'll give you a little heads up about Ron. Ron Collins' work has appeared in Ashimov, Analog, Nature, and several other magazines, anthologies. His writing has received a Writers of the Future Prize and a CompuServe Homer Award. He holds a degree in magic, Magical Engineering. <laughs> I bet you wish, eh, Ron? <laughs> Mechanical Engineering. <laughs> If I have... <laughs> oh, you're mad. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ron, I'm telling you, it's in mechanical engineering. And his work has done... Oh, man. I thought the holiday was meant to bloody sort us out. Listen, I'll start again. He holds a degree. Sakes, <laughs> man. He, he holds a degree in mechanical engineering and his work. It's not even funny. It's not even funny, man. No. He holds a degree, Ron. I'll get there. Trust, I'm going to get here. He holds a degree in mechanical engineering and has worked developing, I can't even say that word, what's that? Avionic systems, electronics and information technology. Ron, you're a superstar. Man, oh, there we go. Ron, get, get a professional to do this next time. Stories narrated by Colin Clues. Colin Clues is a musician and writer living in the UK. He loves music, reading and movies. Although he's just, he's British, he grew up in Africa and still hasn't managed to do anything cooler than that. <laughs> Despite study, studying for... <laughs> I'm messing it all over. I'm not I'm changing it. Despite studying philosophy and learning to play electric guitar. There you go. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Bugs by Ron Collins Narrated by Colin Clues John MacDonald gasped for a breath that would not come, and in that moment understood the full definition of panic. It was the rock inside his chest, and an acid taste of fear in his mouth. He was praying for another heartbeat. Just one. The monitor chirped. He felt a beat, then another. He drew a pearl diver's breath. Carol gripped his hand with a vice-like intensity, her grey streaked hair pulled back, her face the colour of hospital sheets. Are you okay? He nodded. A distant clock marked time with audible clicks, an oxygen tube pressed uncomfortably across his upper lip. Carol sat back in the chair she had pulled to the edge of his bed. She was the one who had kept him alive this long. She had taken control from the moment Dr. Calder diagnosed severe cardiomyopathy heart disease. John made the transplant list six months ago, a good first step but eventually meaningless since there were too many patients and not enough hearts. Carol changed their diet, made him take his medicine, and mandated exercise. Never once had he seen her pessimistic side. But now her face was washed out and faded like a character in an old Sunday afternoon movie. I want you to know something, he said. I know, John, she replied calmly. Her thumb rubbed against the back of his hand. I know. 
Another ball of cement formed in his chest. No air. Five seconds. Ten. Fifteen. Sweat lined his forehead. His thoughts ran with white noise. Finally, a heartbeat. Sweet mercy. A breath. Carol's grip shook. They stared at each other, both understanding. Do you love me? He asked their rote question. Forever and ever. She gave the standard reply. Forever and ever. The door burst open. Dr. Calder blew into the room, the tail of his lab coat flailing in his wake. His eyes were wide behind bifocals, his thin cheeks ruddy. Wisps of hair stuck awkwardly from the sides of his head. We've got approval, John. Carol gasped. Her fingertips drew to her lips and her gaze flushed with longing that was almost painful to see. Nurses bustled, prepping the room. Dr. Calder kept talking, but John could scarcely follow along. The government needed authorization. Would he sign a waiver? Of course. Jesus Christ, of course. His hospital gown disappeared. The nurse sprayed his chest with shaving cream. Carol's beautiful face filled his view, tears streaming down lined cheeks. She said something long and drawn out, but all John heard was, I love you. Then he was gone. Preparations continued as they rolled. IV bottles hung from steel rods. An elevator door closed. A needle pricked his arm. Bugs, he thought. They're going to use the bugs. Then he was asleep. Morphine hazed his thoughts, but John felt the bugs the moment he woke up. A nurse appeared in a blue halo. She jotted a note and punched buttons on an IV stand. The clipboard clattered against the metal rim of his bed. His first lucid memory was the familiar chirp of a heart monitor. He smelled something bitter and felt the sensation of blankets pressing him to the bed. Where the hell was he? John opened his eyes. The lighting was low and grey. The ceiling tiles had patterns of holes running through them. A plastic basin sat on a rolling tray, mauve. The wall on one side was just a white curtain pulled shut. A window opened on the other side, the roof outside flat and covered with pebbles that made it look like an artificial beach. Footsteps came from the hall. Good evening, Mr. MacDonald, a man said as he pulled back the curtain. It was a nurse, male. What time is it? Just past lunch. The nurse pulled a tablet from its slip on the bed rail. He was young, maybe late twenties. His hair was short and parted in the middle. Razor stubble covered his jaw in what John understood was fashionable these days. When did I go under? The nurse put his hand on John's forehead. Still a little dopey, huh? John read the nurse's name tag, Mark Anderson. Anderson's breath smelt of peppermint. Your surgery was just past nine last night. We kept you sedated to make sure the devices had time to take hold. You're coming along fine, though. The devices? Suddenly his chest itched. He put his hand to his chest. No bandages? Your process was administered via hypo, Mr. MacDonald. Six deep cavity shots at various angles. The nurse pressed an instrument against John's neck. John raised his gown. Yes, his chest was smooth but marked with yellow bruises. Why shave me, then? Got to keep the barbers employed. Nurse Anderson smiled at his own joke. Actually, we do that, so if something goes wrong, we're prepped for emergency surgery. John scratched his chest. The bugs, tiny machines that perform tiny jobs, each work together to create a hole. 
no different from a pacemaker, as the promo said. But they felt like spiders crawling around in there, their prickly legs wriggling and spinning webs in the dark corners of his body. They moved together, spawning and growing, releasing their offspring to spawn again. He shuddered. Are you all right? Yeah, it's just, well, I feel them in there. Phantom bugs. The nurse scribbled something on the clipboard. What does it feel like? Like I got a damned ant farm in my chest. What do you mean, phantom bugs? Nurse Anderson's pen didn't stop. Some of the earliest patients of this procedure reported sensation of movement inside them. Nobody really knows what causes them. John and Carol had read a lot about the bugs when Dr. Calder first presented the idea. The devices, as Calder called them, had been successful on rats and dogs but three of the first ten humans subjected to the procedure had died within a week, and the AMA and FDA put a stop to the trial. Despite this, every biotech company in the world saw nanosurgery as the next gold mine. Competition was fierce. Approval, in John's case, was a major feather in Coulter's cap. The nurse finished his notes. The devices are not programmed to interface with the nervous system, meaning you shouldn't feel anything, so we think it's phantom pain, like when someone loses his leg and says he feels his foot. John put his lips together. John tried to ignore the itching. Phantom or not, the bugs gave him the creeps. Footsteps came down the hall and Carol entered. She was short and thin, with the same wiry grace she had carried since the day he met her. There you are, she said. For the first time, John thought he might actually live. Good morning, Dr. Calder said as he breezed into the room. How are we doing today? Five interns and a young woman carrying a palm-sized recorder followed him. A reporter, John realised. Great. He ran his hand through his matted hair and looked at Carol, who was sitting in a chair in the corner of the room reading a magazine. We are doing fine, John finally grumbled. Calder grinned as he checked the IV drip and glanced at a digital readout displaying nanoactivity inside John's body. The doctor's hair was gelled, and if John didn't know better, Calder looked like he was wearing a touch of makeup. John scratched his chest and gave a sideways glance at the reporter. He wanted to talk to Calder about the bugs. Do we have to have the camera? He said. Calder grinned. You better get used to it, John. You'll be doing late night before you know it. What do you mean? You're all over the news, honey, Carol answered. That's right. Every wire on the planet is buzzing about us. Great, he said as he looked at the camera. Calder scanned John's chemistry chart. I still feel the bugs, John blurted. Ah. Calder turned to the interns. Mr. MacDonald has complained about sensations of nanoactivity inside his chest. Does anyone know our current thinking as to what might be causing this? A thin kid with pimpled skin raised a hand. Calder pointed to the intern. Mr. Simpson? The latest proposal is that the patient is susceptible to heat released by the bug's activity. That's right, though I prefer to use the term devices. The interns chuckled. The camera panned. We've injected several classes of device into the patient, the doctor continued. Rover units to protect our protein programs from the patient's immune system, cleansers to rid the bloodstream of fatty deposits and other clogging agents, and, of course, the Medidopes, units coded to search out damaged heart tissue. Once these devices find the damaged area, they latch on. As more and more units find homes, they build a surface, almost, to use an unfortunate analogy, like a colony of ants builds a bridge. He gave John a familiar pat on the kneecap. These are all machines, and machines get warm as they work. 
Hmm, John replied. It didn't feel like heat to him, but the reporter put the lens in his face and suddenly he felt like a bumbling idiot. It looks like you're doing great, Dr. Holder said. Yes, uh, I feel good. And he did. He was breathing easy. His heart seemed fine. They've got me up and walking already. Calder gave him a million-dollar smile. You'll be going home tomorrow. Isn't that a little early? Carol replied. No reason to keep him. I want to see him every day so we can change out his programming proteins. But the Medidox are stable. I don't see any reason he can't go home. John scratched his chest again. I wonder if I'll set off the airport metal detectors. The interns laughed, and the reporter drew in for another close-up. He woke from a nap to find his room full of people wearing lab smocks and green scrubs. Surprise! A short blonde woman at the side of his bed said with a smile. She held a cupcake with a lit candle. What is this? John mumbled. Sorry to wake you. We're from the device lab and we just wanted to wish you a good send-off tomorrow. I'm Sally, she shook his hand. Thank you, he said, accepting the cupcake. It's fat-free, sorry. He smiled and blew out the candle. They sang him Happy Second Birthday. The cupcake was dry, but good. They each shook his hand and wished him good luck. He thanked them each, making sure to call them each by their names. John was good at names and faces. You had to be to survive in the insurance business, and it seemed to make them even happier. Sally was the last to leave. Sorry we couldn't take more time, John, but we've got a thousand things to do. I understand, John said. Be sure to thank everyone for the nano bash. She chuckled and gave John a radiant smile. Nano Bash, the guy will love it. Before releasing him, Dr. Calder asked John to participate in a press conference. I really want people to see how beneficial this procedure is. Think of the folks on the transplant list. John was happy to agree. I wouldn't be here without you, Doc, so if you want me to do the hokey-pokey on my way out of here, I'm your man. Calder laughed. The shower and fresh clothes made him feel truly human. Andrea Yan, a Medicorp public relations specialist, spent two hours going over questions and answers with him and Carol. Finally, it was time to leave. Dr. Calder walked on John's left side, Carol on his right. The hospital administrator and Ms. Yan followed closely behind. I feel like I'm heading for the electric chair, John quipped. Just be ready for the questions, Calder said. John gave him a sideways glance. The doctor was nervous. How bad can it be? he said. Then a wave of heat hit him like a glass wall, and he saw lights and people and microphones that grew like metallic mushroom from every direction. The voices called from the crowd en masse. How are you feeling, Mr. MacDonald? Why'd you agree to the procedure? Hey, John, look this way. Show us your scar. John put on his forced smile and nodded, and held Carol close by him like Miss Yan had coached him to. A makeshift stage stood in front of the deep blue backdrop with the AMA emblem and Medicore logo pasted on it. The hospital seal was embedded in the podium. The media questioned Medicorp's president, who made several references to regulations and the new trillion-dollar market that Medicorp stands poised to be the first to leap into. Then Dr. Calder discussed the procedure. Finally came John's turn. The questions were a blur. How does it feel to be the first real robot? Huh? When did you first know you were sick? Four or five years ago. Do you think you should be dead now? I couldn't say, but it looked pretty bad for a while. I'm, I'm pleased that the FDA approved the procedure. Humble nods from the medical staff. Do you get any good radio stations in there? Laughs from the crowd. Are you from the Inquirer? He replied. Thunderous laughter. John looked to Ms. Yan. 
She gave only a glimmer of a smile, as if to say, I told you that line would work. Dr. Calder finally stepped back onto the stage. I'm sure you'll have ample opportunity to talk to John over the next few days, but I think it's time we let him get some rest. Ten minutes later they were in the car. I didn't think that would ever end, he said. Carol smiled, put the car in gear, and drove onto the interstate. John scratched his chest, feeling the bugs for the first time since the interview had started. A television van from Channel 5 was parked across the street when they pulled in the driveway. The door slid open and a woman and a man stepped out. The woman had dark hair and lipstick and wore a bright red blazer. Her perfume knocked him over from across the driveway. Welcome home, John, she said, holding a microphone. Can we have a quick word? I don't really want... Hit us, Kennard. The man pointed the camera at them. The light flared. John raised his hand to shield his eyes. This is Chris Cordy with Five Alive. I'm here with nanosurgery patient John MacDonald. Hi, John. Uh, hi. Can you tell us about the procedure? Well, I, uh... He felt like a fool under the glare of the lights. Then the morning's training kicked in. Dr. Calder and the medical people presented my case to various government agencies. Five minutes later, Carol dragged him into the house. By then, two more television crews had arrived, and a helicopter from Channel 12 circled above them. The phone was ringing when they walked in the door. Hello? Carol answered. May I ask who's calling? Mr. MacDonald is on doctor's orders to rest. No, ma'am, I don't know whose representation is. No, 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 thank you, but I'm not going to answer that. Thank you. Goodbye. She hung up quickly. My God, John, that was the Davis Agency. They want to talk about handling your PR. He laughed. Carol dialed their messaging service. We've got 98 messages, John. Christ. He sat down and scratched his chest. The bugs were still there, scratching and clawing as if they wanted out. And for the life of him, it seemed like everyone else in the world was on the outside, scratching to get in. The next day, John was sitting in the kitchen. The remnants of his lunch littered a small plate. It had been perhaps the finest turkey sandwich he had ever eaten. He put the paper down and looked out the bay window. The car was in the garage. Bright sunlight fell on the white driveway. Carol was down with the laundry. He sat there, alone for the first time since his surgery, looking out over the backyard and thinking about his life. John had sent three kids to college selling insurance, put up swing sets and mowed grass and PDA meetings whenever Carol dragged him along. He taught the kids to drive and watched as they went on their first dates, and he had shared it all with the woman of his dreams. He had planned to retire another four or five years. That would be his time with Carol. Their time. John's throat twisted. There were so many things they had left to do. He had honestly thought he was going to die. He had almost missed it all. He had almost ruined it for both of them. Now, though, he was alive and in the quiet of his own home, and he could not ever remember feeling as good as he felt at this precise moment in time. Everything was so vivid, so vital. He suddenly wanted to be outside. He wanted to walk, to feel the sun on his arms as they swung freely with his stride. He wanted to feel asphalt pass beneath his feet. John picked his pill from the table, slipped it into his mouth, and swallowed it with the last of his milk. It was his programming pill a time-released vial of proteins that gave the bugs their marching orders. Calder called it a PDB, Protein Data Bus, a series of pills that fed the machines one function at a time. The full program would complete in three weeks. Then he would be free again. He inhaled the aroma of wild onion among the lingering scents of the grass outside, 
then stood up and rinsed the plate. Before he knew it, he had his favorite floppy hat on his head and was heading towards the door. Where do you think you're going? John stopped with his hand on the doorknob. Carol, having just returned from the basement, was leaning against the kitchen counter, arms folded across her chest. Just for a little walk. Are you trying to kill yourself, John? I feel fine. You've only been home a day. I was just going down the road a bit. Nothing strenuous for two weeks, remember? You've already been out twice today. He pulled the hat from his head and shrugged. Probably just run into a reporter anyway. He dropped his hat on the table and turned to the television. Is that where that goes? Carol asked. John grimaced, picked the hat up, and stepped into the hallway closet to put it on the top shelf. Seriously, John, what are you trying to do? You know you're cute when you're angry, honey, he said as he tried to engulf her in a hug. Carol pushed away. Seriously, John, be careful, okay? When you were in hospital, I thought, well, you know what I thought. But now it's like someone hit a magic switch, and I've got you back, and you're all good as new, and I don't know. He opened his arms. This time she let him hug her. She felt good, her cheek buried in the fleshy part of his shoulder. I can't stand the idea of losing you, John. It's okay now, he said, stroking the graying strands of her hair. He remembered when it was long and black. I feel strong, honey. Like I could run a marathon and not break a sweat. We're going to be together for a long time. Carol pulled back. I'm glad. I really am. Just take it easy for a while. She cocked her head towards the pile of notes on the counter by the phone. Maybe spend some time digging through your calls. He grumbled. Agents, talk show hosts, national news anchors. Called I hadn't been joking. I'm not in the mood. You ought to handle them sometime. Yeah, I know. Just not today. The telephone rang. They chuckled at each other. Let the service get it, John said. Carol nodded and went to pull weeds from her flower beds. John walked into the living room and looked at the TV. He didn't think he could stomach another game show. He picked up a book from the stand beside the couch. The Old Man on the Sea. It had been a long time since he'd been able to just sit and read. Just his luck. Now that he had the time, he was too restless to concentrate. The phone rang again. He hung his head. It was going to be a long couple of weeks. He sat down and started to read. Dinner! Carol called. John looked up, surprised at the time. The smell of garlic and fresh broccoli came from the kitchen. Suddenly he was hungry. The books were piled on the table beside his recliner. He frowned. Not only had he made it through The Old Man and the Sea, but he had read a pair of Ken Follett novels and was just finishing Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. In the past he had read Hawking's book because it made him feel more intelligent to think about things like relativity and time, even though he never understood it all. He would read like it was a liqueur scanning short passages and relishing the possibilities locked in its pages. This time, though, he found himself understanding Hawking's words clearly. Now he understood exactly what the space-time continuum meant. He scratched the back of his neck. Are you coming? Carol called. Yeah. He put the book down atop a Larry McMurtry title. Jesus, he read Lonesome Dove, too. He woke up the next morning with a hard-on. A big-time, straight-ahead, rip-roaring boner so hard it hurt. The lines of sunlight fell across the bed, and muffled morning sounds of birds filtered through the room. Carol was curled with her back to him. He admired the teepee he made under the comforter. Christ, what should he do? 
He considered waiting it out, then getting up, but that idea lasted only as long as it took to put his hand down and touch himself. His imagination kicked in, and he thought of himself atop Carol, and her telling him how she felt. The idea of her legs wrapped around him was unbearable. He rolled over and put his hand on her hip. When she didn't react, he slid closer and pressed against her. She stirred a bit. He kissed the back of her neck. Soon she was more awake than she had been in a very long time. The sensation in his chest returned while he was in the shower, but John no longer cared. It was great to be alive, and if the occasional tingle of bugs was his price, then by God it was one he was willing to pay. Still, they seemed to be lower today, twisting around in the area of his stomach and intestines. His kidneys itched while he was shaving. His skin tingled. Ideas raced through his head so fast he felt like it might explode. When he rubbed himself dry, he got another erection. Christ, it was great to be alive. The smell of eggs and toast hung in the air as he stepped into the kitchen. Perfect timing, said Carol over her shoulder. She wore a pair of wrinkled sweats and one of his T-shirts. She smeared butter on a piece of toast. What's this? It's called breakfast. I didn't think we did big breakfast anymore. She handed him a plate with an omelette. Her grin was mischievous. I thought you deserved something special. John ground pepper over his omelette. Another programming pill sat beside his napkin. A pile of newspapers sat on the table. A tabloid headline proclaimed he was discovered communicating to his homeland in outer space. Look, honey, I'm a Martian. She smirked as she sat beside him. I thought you'd like that one. He took a bite, tasting cheese and mushroom and onion in perfect balance. The toast was wheat, crisp and fresh, with butter and a perfectly thin layer of raspberry jam. This is the best omelette I've ever tasted. I bet you say that to all the girls. He laughed. I think I'm going to call the late show. I thought you didn't want to do that kind of thing. You only go around once, you know, he said with a shrug. Besides, it would be nice to see California, don't you think? We could rent a car and drive back, maybe stop at the Grand Canyon on the way. Or Vegas. Feeling lucky? He raised a leering eyebrow. We need to start planning these things, he said. We need to start living again. Are you okay? She said, staring at him. Yeah, he said, not knowing exactly what to say next. I think I'm okay. It's like I'm a kid again. I'd second that, she replied. I'm serious. I feel great. Things taste better. They sound better. It's like I don't know what it's like. Maybe you should talk to Dr. Calder this afternoon. He nodded and took another bite of toast. Butter, jam, robust, full of citric life, gloriously sweet and smooth. It was enough to make a grown man cry. Sorry to keep you waiting, Dr. Calder said as he stepped into his office. John and Carol had been there for 45 minutes. The parade of nurses, technicians, needles, protein programmers, cat scans and x-rays had long since served to kill whatever patients they might have had. Is he okay? Carol said. His nanoactivity is abnormally high. What does that... The doctor held up his hand to stop Carol's question. We tested the devices in your blood sample, John, and we discovered the interface has grown. He glanced at Carol. What that means is... My bugs are changing the way they communicate. Yes, Calder said. They're still using the central protein bus we designed for them, so they get our commands. But additional communication parts have spontaneously grown. The doctor looked at John with an expectant expression. You found new bugs, haven't you? Ones you never injected. The doctor nodded. 
How did you guess? I spent this morning reading your material about how the devices are programmed. Different bugs for different types of cell, one designed for smooth muscle, another for striated, one bug for neural work, another for skeletal cells. The internet has better descriptions than your pamphlets, by the way. Anyway, it isn't much of a leap to guess that if the bugs are making new communications interfaces, they're likely making new systems. You're right, the doctor said. Carol's gaze flashed between Calder and her husband. She clenched her fists, and her jaw worked in that way she had when she was truly angry. What the hell are you talking about? John turned to face his wife. The bugs are doing things they weren't supposed to, and they developed a way to make more of themselves. Maybe, Calder said. We don't know much yet. Give the text a couple of days. In the meantime, the scans show John's heart is totally enclosed and is being supported by the devices just as planned. So we're moving into the final repair stage with the programming proteins. Where else are they? John said. You've got a mech mass at the base of your mandula oblongata and a few in your kidneys, spleen, several joints. But we don't see any damage at this point, so there's no reason to panic. I've got the lab work on a blocking protein. Essentially a big mask that should stop the devices from being able to read anything we don't feed them directly. So it won't shut them off, but they'll be blind to any new commands, John said. That's right. They'll be in the next set of pills? Carol asked. Calder nodded. And we'll give John an injection now to get the new program started. And we've got a pair of oral doses prepared for this evening and tomorrow morning. They were silent for an awkward moment. Well, Carol said, I guess we'll wait and see. John knew before they went to bed that he wasn't getting any sleep, and had only slipped under the covers to encourage Carol. Now it was 1am, and he felt warm. He saw bugs in the darkened corners of his thoughts. He heard them in the recesses of his auditory canals. The skin along his arm burned. His fingernail caught on something when he scratched it, so he scratched more. His skin felt crusty, but he couldn't see anything in the dark. He slipped out of bed padded to the bathroom, and closed the door before flicking on the light. A grey disc had grown on his forearm. It was oblong and metallic, like a drop of lead, the approximate surface area of a dime. He rubbed it. Tiny grey fragments clung to his fingertip. Bugs. Thousands. Millions. Maybe trillions of bugs crawling over his skin. He looked at his face in the mirror, but saw no sign of them there. He pulled off his pyjama shirt, a pinhole shirt on the fleshy part of his deltoid. He stripped off his pants and found nothing, but a scrubbing sensation had started low on the right side of his groin. His hands shook. Holy God! He gulped there and looked in the mirror again. He had to call Dr. Calder. He went downstairs to dial. Hello, you have reached the answering service of Dr. Peter Calder. John punched the one without waiting for the automatic menu. The phone rang five times before somebody answered. He cut the operator off before she could speak. This is John MacDonald. I need to talk to Dr. Calder immediately. I'm sorry, who is this again? The nameless woman said. John MacDonald, hurry. Oh, you're the guy with the bugs. Yes, he said in exasperation. How does it feel to be on TV? Jesus fucking Christ, lady. I didn't call you at one in the goddamn morning to chat about television. Get me Calder right now. The phone crackled with awkward silence. I'll have to have him call you back. Fine. John squeezed the phone so tight his fingers grew white. That's fine. He's got my number. He put the phone down. The case was split along its length. John glanced at his open palm. 
They were in there. He could feel them working away, changing him, standing naked in his kitchen, staring at the juxtaposition of the broken phone and the grey leaden disc on his arm. John MacDonald began to hyperventilate. The phone rang. Dr. Calder? What's the matter, John? I don't know. I've got bugs coming out of my freaking arm. Calder didn't reply immediately. John's scalp tingled. Meet me at the hospital in an hour, Calder finally said. Yeah, an hour. Don't panic, okay? Everything will be fine. Easy for you to say, John said. See you there. The phone clicked. The dial tone buzzed. John slipped into the bedroom and picked out pants and shoes and a pullover sweatshirt. He debated waking Carol, but wanted to spare her the sight of bugs eating through his body. He smirked. Who was he kidding? The grey spots made his stomach sick. Down in the root of his bones he was afraid. The truth is he didn't want his wife to see him like this. With luck he would be back before she woke up anyway. So he wrote Carol a note and left her asleep. It was one forty-five in the morning when John rolled into the lot. He parked next to a black BMW with a Genotech sticker affixed to the lower right-hand corner of its windshield. He scratched his arm. Genotech was one of Medicor's competitors. Perhaps he should have used them. A security guard nodded as John headed to the elevators. The third floor smelled of cleanser. He stepped around a huge polishing machine standing sentry in the middle of the hallway. The route to Dr. Calder's office took him by the device lab, a large room with glass panel walls, bright lights and chrome-coated equipment. He glanced in as he padded through the hallway. Five techs were working, and a man in a blue sweater stood beside the tech at the far end of one workbench. They were pointing at a screen. John thought about pounding on the window and waving hello, but didn't. Calder was probably driving them pretty hard now. The waiting room to the doctor's office was open. He flipped on the light and took a seat scanning the now-familiar coffee table filled with neatly aligned copies of Nano Times and the Medical Journal of Biotech. He closed his eyes and saw himself morphing into a grey mass of churning levers, rods and rotors. Jesus, get a handle, man. He took a deep breath, scratching his arm. Something was wrong here, he thought. Something out of kilter. He felt uneasy. The clock read one fifty-five, probably fifteen or twenty minutes before Calder got here. John lifted his collar. The pinpoint on his shoulder had grown. The spot on his forearm was larger too. He glanced at the device lab. The man in the blue sweater was still leaning over the workspace with the lab techs. That was what had nagged him. He had met all the techs at one point or another, but John didn't recognize this man. John stepped out of Calder's office and pressed against the lab wall. Blue sweater was maybe thirty-five and just beginning to show a bulge at his waist. His hair was black, trimmed short. John was positive he'd never seen him before. He strained to hear their conversation. The connection to the spinal column is complete, one of the techs said. Yeah, Blue Sweater replied. And the optimizer units are working. After today's scare, we'll have to pull them back a bit or Calder will figure this out. John's eyebrows knitted together. He'll be back for more masks tomorrow, the tech said. What do you want to do? Blue Sweater straightened and put his hands on his hips. Let's cool it on the optimizers for now and work on getting the respiratory anchors in place. You got it. Blue Sweater patted the tech's shoulder. Gotta run. See you tomorrow night? Sounds good. John backed into a dark recess as the man walked down the hallway and pressed a button for the elevator. John didn't want to lose him. 
The elevators would take too long to arrive, so he took the stairs, two at a time, rushing downward. The elevator chimed as he hit the ground floor. Blue Sweater waved at the guard as he left. The guard gave John a quizzical stare as he followed, but didn't say anything. The man walked to the car next to John's. John's eyes fell on the Genotech symbol. Holy shit! Blue Sweater Man worked for Genotech! Dr. Calder didn't know what was happening because these weren't his bugs. Suddenly John wanted to hit this man, wanted to squash him like the cockroach he was. The asshole! The total asshole! John strode forward, then ran, his feet pounding against the asphalt, his rage pounding against his temples. What? The man looked up just in time to catch John's right cross. He fell against the car and slid to the ground, blood flowing from his nose. He tried to crawl but could barely manage to lift himself. John kicked the car door and left a dent. I'm John MacDonald, and unless you want to go to jail for the rest of your life, I suggest you start talking. What the hell are you doing? The man said as he regained his senses. John ripped his shirt sleeve back to his elbow, grabbed the man by the collar, lifted him up to push him against his beamer, and shoved his forearm into the man's nose. What the hell is this? Blue Sweater focused on John's arm. Whoa! What's your name? Martin. Martin Sprawling. You work for Genotech? Yeah. The man put his fingers to his bleeding nose. It's probably a reaction to the mask they ran today. Uh, We can fix it. John tightened his hold of Sprawling's collar. What's in the bugs you're giving me? Sprawling looked as if he were judging how much to say. John twisted his grip, raised the man off the ground and crushed him against the car. Sprawling winced. Genotech is out of business either way, asshole, John said. Sprawling gave in. There's a bunch of different ones, but the most important are the neural links and triage systems. What the hell do they do? They fix you. They find things they think can improve, then build whatever kind of bug they need to fix it. They're making me better? Sprawling nodded. They're making you more of who you can be. Spiders tingled in his veins. Christ. He threw Sprawling to the ground and kicked another dent into the BMW's door. Sprawling tried to crawl away, but John kicked him in the ribs and pinned him against the asphalt. Did you actually think you could get away with this? He realized immediately how stupid that question was. Anyone in the insurance business knew just how far a company was willing to go when that kind of money was on the table. I can't believe you've got the entire Medicore lab on your payroll. Just the night shift and a couple of protein programmers. Martin Sprawling squirmed against John's restraint, blood trickling down his chin. Maybe we can make a deal. I don't deal with dirt. Think about it, John. Think about it hard. I can make you into a miracle man. You're already probably going to live forever. John tightened his lips, digesting that thought. What? The bugs are optimizing everything. John stood, thinking, still absorbing. Could he live forever? We're both big boys here, Sprawling said. What do you want? The question hung like a cloud. A gust of wind blew his hair. Streetlight reflected off the metallic lump on his forearm. The skin on his scalp tingled, and he felt bugs crawling in his brain. What if he did? What if he lived forever? What did he want? I want my life back. I don't think it's a good idea to take the bugs out. I don't want you to take them out. 
I don't understand. Here's what you're going to do, John said. By breakfast the bugs had grown him a new skin, soft and smooth, pale, and nearly perfect match for his own. Genotech had delivered the new program that afternoon while Carol was out shopping. John was sitting at the kitchen table when she returned. Hi, she said without looking at him. He watched her put grocery bags on the counter, remembering how she used to look striding over open ground. What's that goofy look for? Do you still love me? She stared at him. Are you all right? He told her everything, explained how Genotech had slipped foreign bugs into the mix, about his eyesight, which was so good now he no longer needed glasses. He talked about how it felt to walk without pain in his knees, about smells and sounds and the taste of butter on toast. He explained how Calder was going to extend the mask, but how it wasn't going to matter. I'm going to live a very long time, he finally said. Carol looked at him as if she didn't know him. What about me? Carol whispered. What about us? John fished the vial from his pocket and put it on the table. Her gaze lingered on it. What about the kids? Maybe someday, but for now it's just you and me. No one else can know. What if something goes wrong? His stare was pleading. The refrigerator kicked on. Carol wiped away a tear. I'm still me, Carol. I don't feel different anywhere that matters. She bit her upper lip. This is a lot to absorb. Yes, it is. Take your time. He stood to leave her alone, to give her space to think. Wait, she said. She picked up the vial, looked at it first, then at John. Do you love me? she said. He smiled. Forever and ever. She twisted the lid. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Ron's. And if you want a magical engineering degree, come and see Ron, he'll sort you out with one. Ron and Colin, thank you so much for that. Fantastic, lovely. Adam, good choice there, sir, well done. So that is Starship Sofa. 336 put to bed. With a little bit of trouble in the middle there. I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa Evacuation Procedure Initiated Shuttle set for launch Airlock will be opened in 3 2 1 This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.